Hello and welcome to Artisans of the Wine, a podcast about the guardian of a prestigious craft. A man of Champagne, the region in northeastern France that produces some of the world's finest and most expensive wines. He's a man who has been described as a witty and elegant champenois, who humbly creates spectacular champagnes with much love and passion. The man I'm talking about is Hervé Deschamps, chef de cave at Champagne Perrier Jouet for the past 27 years, and only the seventh ever in the history of the house. He's responsible for the creation of Belle Epoque Blanc de Blanc, one of Perrier Jouet's most sought-after wines. And he's witnessed an evolution in the role of chef de cave, from winemaker to high-profile global ambassador. This year, 2020, is his last as chef de cave. He's about to retire and hand over the reins to his successor. So this podcast series is very much Hervé's story, and it offers a unique and intriguing insight into the modest man behind the famous Perrier Jouet Cuvée. My name is Susie Barry. I'm a master of wine, a broadcaster, writer and podcaster, and I'll be your host throughout this series, helping to bring to life this remarkable story through conversations between Hervé and some of the extraordinary people he's had the chance to meet and work with throughout his career. We'll hear from Michelin-starred chefs to sommeliers and journalists to fellow chef de cave. On a practical note, although the aim was always to record each episode in one location, due to the current coronavirus lockdown restrictions, sadly, none of us can travel. However, we've embraced the chaos and we are hooking up virtually, with me in the UK and Elve and his guests in France and around the globe. But whatever our locations and wherever you happen to be listening from, we very much hope you enjoy what you hear. So in this first episode, I have a rare opportunity to talk to Hervé one-on-one and ask him about his childhood in Africa, about tasting the oldest champagne in the world, and just what he thinks the future holds for the region he's dedicated his life to. So, Hervé, I'd love to know what life was like for the young Hervé Deschamps, because from what I understand, you were quite a, a well-travelled young man. Yes, I travelled a lot uh, when I was a child. Uh, I was born in Morocco. My father was a military man and uh, he travelled to North Africa. Uh, after Morocco, I stayed in uh, Algeria and uh, at the end, it's Cameroon in uh, Equatorial Africa. And I come back to France when I was seven years old. Um, but what about back in, once you got back to Champagne and, you know, you were still very young, what's your memory there of returning? It's uh, during a winter. It's a very cold winter. And uh, I remember the snow. That's the first time I remember <laughs> the snow. And also the first time I stay in my grandparents' uh, home near Epernay in the Côte des Blancs. And uh, for me, the first time to taste some grapes for the last harvest. So your grandparents were, did they own a vineyard? work in the vineyard. They have a small vineyard and they produce uh, Chardonnay grapes. And for me, Chardonnay, it's all the grapes I see when I was a child. Because you were in the, the Côte de Blanc. Yes, in the Côte de yeah. Blanc. 
Um, so moving on, you did your military service uh, and then you studied at the University of Dijon. And then I think it was in 1983, you were, I think, only 26, and you landed your job at Perejouet. What was your first role in the company? In the company, I was in charge of the vinifications on the, all the workers in the cellars. And uh, for me, I have only two months to memorize the plan of the cellars on the name of the workers. Two months? Yes, I work with <laughs> Mr. Emmanuel Charpentier only two months before he's retired. So the cellar master at the time, um, when you were working there first, was uh, André Bavré. And, you know, he obviously was a mentor for you. Um, you. You did take over eventually, but you worked with him for 10 years. What would you say was the most important thing he, he taught you? He said, uh, in Perrier-Jouet, it's uh, very easy to make a great wine. We have a very great grapes. We have a nice vineyard. And it's uh, the key for uh, maintain the consistency for the blend. And uh, it's not only when you create a vintage, it's a, a beautiful year, but every year you create the new vintage. And for Mr. Bravare, like me now, it's very important to create every year the same consistency for the quality for the new vintage uh, champagne. So, Hervé, there is obviously the difference between the non-vintage, a wine that uh, comes from several different harvests, and then the, the vintage from one year. Would you actually say it's more difficult to create that non-vintage than it is to create the vintage? Yes, when uh, it's a harvest, it's a beautiful, you create the vintage and you keep the best tanks for the vintage blend. And with the other tanks, you create the no-vintage. And it's very important to have also a good quality, but you have another chance to have a reservoir wine to help you to maintain the quality and the consistency for the taste. So in a Perejouet non-vintage, how many reserve wines would we expect there to be? And it depends for the quality for the year, but uh, by average, it's near 14% for the blend on maximum 10 years old. Gosh, so, so vintage is going back to... Yes. Back 10 years could be all mixed yes, into that non-vintage. Yes, uh, during mm. 10 years to manage what it's happen in the next harvest. Um, so you succeeded André Bavaret in 1993, I believe, yes. uh, as cellar master. You were only the seventh ever in the history of the House of Perejouet. What was the role of cellar master like then? And then how do you think it's changed to what it is today? At this time, uh, Perejouet, it's a, a small company. 
uh, with a lot of um, responsibility for the cellar master. We have uh, a role not only for the winemaking, but also for the wine processing, uh, dry goods processing, like the corks, bottles, uh, uh, cartons. And we have also all the workers' organizations. You had to do all the planning of everything, yes. really. Buying, yes. organizing yes. everything. Yeah, gosh. And uh, less uh, automatizations and more workers than today in the cellars. And we work uh, always in uh, Epernay. It's very rare the cellar master travel around the world. You have some meeting with some uh, sommelier or more often with a wine journalist to discuss with the CEO or the marketing directors or sales directors a new vintage. But you don't make this alone like today. So André Bavaret would not have travelled, really? He travelled one time in uh, the US for the 150th anniversary for the first shipping in the US market. That was it? Yeah, in Gosh. New York. In New York. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how has it changed today? You know, what's the difference today for a seller master? For me, uh, it's uh, since uh, 2001, it's uh, a special demand to travel around the world to have a contact, a direct contact with the sommelier, with the sales forces, with uh, distributors, to explain what is Perrier Jouet so different between other companies and to introduce a new vintage. It's always a good uh, time to travel around the world and to present with uh, sommelier, with wine journalists or during a winemaker dinner. So I'm going to ask you to be really honest with me now, Hervé. Um, you seem to me a very, very social person. Um, you've always got a twinkle in your eye. You've always got a warm smile. Um, you obviously appear to love meeting people. Is this this travelling and the ambassadorial role, is it something that you enjoy or would you rather be all the time just in the cellar? I enjoy, you know, but at the beginning it's uh, more difficult uh, as you know, uh, in agriculture studies, you don't learn English. And uh, <laughs> at 30, true. 35, I have uh, English lessons. And I stayed two weeks uh, in the uh, UK to have uh, more uh, practice around uh, uh, English and to be more confident with uh, conversations. And when you have uh, some uh, guests at uh, Epernay, we have a tasting, but sometimes you have a lunch or dinner after, but you don't speak wine all the lunch. And it's very important to have uh, socializations, uh, conversations around the wine. Obviously, you travel a lot. Uh, I'm not sure quite how much of your time, but do you keep a record of everywhere you've been? Yes, I record uh, times I visit uh, Japan, US or UK on how many days I spend. And uh, today it's difficult to say it's uh, half a year, but per year it's near 50, 60 days per year. And uh, the most important travels I made, it's with Japan. And uh, it's near 25 times to visit Japan. And uh, sometimes it's two weeks, sometimes it's three days. And it depends for the the focus for the travel. 
Is that because you just happen to love Japan or is it one of Perijuit's sort of biggest markets? It's、um, a biggest market for Belle Epoque bottles and、uh, Japanese culture, it's near French culture and、uh, it's、um, like、uh, savoir faire. You have a lot of uh, um, artisans uh, around uh, uh, cooking, around.、Uh, The knife. So, so,、uh, it's uh, so strong. Similar artistic, similar yes, artistically. Strange, then, but uh, yeah. with Perrier Jouet, you have also, also another connection with the art, with、uh, the decor for the Belle Epoque bottle, with the galley decor. It's created with、uh, Asian art. It's a、uh, golden enamel. And、uh, it's、um, a revolution. We should explain that we're talking about the actual bottle that the、yeah. Belle Epoque is,、um, But this bottle is bottled is great, in.、Uh, so there's a similarity there between,、yes. there's a similarity、uh, or, or a, a connection with Japan and the Asian art that creates the、yeah. bottle. Now we're talking of Belle Epoque. I wanted to ask you about your、uh, your legacies.、Um, obviously, one of them is the development of the role of the chef de cave. But what about the wines that you have personally introduced to the range? The root of the Perrier Jouet Company is Chardonnay, and they use a lot of Chardonnay, beautiful Chardonnay from Côte des Blancs, like Cramont, Avise, in all the blend. But they have no blanc de blanc. Blanc de blanc. This is when you started. There was no blanc de blanc. Yes, no blanc de blanc. They had in the past、uh, some blanc de blanc, but very short times, perhaps some time for one shot. But they don't maintain in the range. And when、uh, for the new millennium activations, the CEO have a special request for me: create some things for the new millennium. It's、uh, only one shot. And at this moment,、uh, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. It's the first year I was cellar master. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> And、uh, we have a beautiful、uh, field of Chardonnay in Cramont. The name is Bouron Leroy on Bouron du Midi. Every year, it's a beautiful tanks in the Perrier Jouet winery. And I decide to create a blend with the two plots. And、uh, We launched in '99, and it's a huge、uh, success. And、uh, I have a demand at this time to maintain the Belle Epoque Blanc de Blanc.、Uh, the first vintage is '93, launched just before the new millennium, and to maintain in the range. And the second、uh, vintage of Belle Epoque Blanc de Blanc, it's only '99. And Hervé, obviously, Blanc de Blanc is particularly important to the Perrier Jouet house. Just explain for anybody who doesn't understand what a Blanc de Blanc is, what we're talking about. Blanc de Blanc, it's only Chardonnay, and、uh, it's the most elegant and delicate wine you can find in Champagne. And for Perrier Jouet, it's the roots for the company. The first vineyard of Perrier Jouet was some Chardonnay near Epernay, and、uh, today in the Perrier Jouet vineyards. We have、uh, a large、uh, quantity of Chardonnay in the best location, like Cramont and Avise in the Côte des Blancs. 
and it's uh, the pillar of Perrier Jouet style. So whereas most champagnes are a blend of some black grapes and white grapes, well, Pinot yes. Noir, Pinot Meunier, Chardonnay, a Blanc de Blanc is purely Chardonnay. Yeah, it's a pure elegancy of Chardonnay. And uh, with the bubbles, it's a lively wine. It's more fun with aperitif time, but you can, uh, with a Belle Epoque Blanc de Blanc, you can have a food pairing with the main dishes, not only fish with a little uh, saffronese uh, sauces, but also with uh, poultry breast with a creamy sauces, also perhaps with some uh, black truffle infusion inside the sauces. I'm coming for dinner very soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So your life at Perijuit has been uh, incredibly varied. Uh, you've witnessed um, so many things. You've initiated things. What would you say, if you could choose your proudest moment or even your favourite moment, what would it be? It's difficult to choose only one. Perhaps it's a, a period. It's a, near the bicentenary anniversary of Perijuit in 2011, in 2009, you have the first event. It's a vertical testing. It's art of vintage. You are testing the current vintage and you move to the oldest bottle you can find in Perijouet Cellars. So this is entitled Art of Vintage. Yes, it's Art I of Vintage. That. It's uh, a legacy uh, of uh, the previous cellar master to understand why Perijouet is so consistent. And we have a stop uh, with uh, the first Belle Epoque, 1964, the first vintage of Belle Epoque. And after you move to Beautiful Year, it's uh, 1947. And you have a stop with the uh, oldest bottle, like uh, 1846, the first uh, low dosage, less sugar than in the past. It's only 20 grams sugar. Previously, it's near 200 grams sugar. So when we, we just clarify that the low dosage means that it's drier, much yeah, drier than yeah. it would have been in the past. Yeah. Uh, because it, originally, champagne was much sweeter, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, at, at the beginning, in champagne, it's uh, near uh, 100 or 200 grams sugar per litre. At this time, we add salts to preserve the healthiness for the meat or for the vegetables. And uh, with the spicy, with uh, Asian spicy, especially in the UK, they reduce the saltiness for the meat, for the dishes. And they need less sugar in the drinks. And for the champagne, it's the first time with the UK, you create a champagne with only 20 grams sugar per liter. 
and it's a first breed. And that was 1846. Yeah. That's fascinating. But even then, that's still, today, that would be considered high, wouldn't it? 20-something grams per litre. You know, we're, we're looking at dosage now of, of 8 to 10, probably, as an average. Yeah, 10 uh, is the maximum for Paris, right? Yeah. You are near yeah. 8 grams sugar per litre. Uh, 20, so it's uh, extra dry. <laughs> Do you know, that's so fascinating. So the idea that we had very salty food in the past meant that we would need the sugar to balance the, yeah. the salt of the meat. When we moved from not needing the salt or, or curing our meats with spices, that was when, I didn't know this, but that was when champagne became drier, so around the mid-19th century. Yes. And uh, the first demand, it's from the UK. They have Indian or Chinese uh, spicy, more than French or Italy. And uh, it's the first market to demand low dosage for champagne. So 1846 was one of the vintages you tasted in this incredible art of vintage tasting. Yes. What was the oldest? The oldest bottle, uh, it's the oldest bottle you can find in champagne in the Perrier Jouet Cellars. It's uh, 1825. And it's a very old shape uh, of the bottle. It's not a vertical shape. And you can find some bubble in the glass. And it's an original cork. It's not the original wild. And uh, it's uh, a privilege for me to open the bottle. And after a very small sheet, when I pull the wine, I see the color. It's an amber color with a few bubbles. It's not intense bubbles, but you have a very smelly aromas. It's like a very old port, a white port, like a figus, like an apricot. Some uh, spicy, like uh, candidate ginger, candidate melon, but also torrefaction aromas. Torrefaction when you uh, toast the bread, but also some coffee aromas. On the test, it's a, at the beginning, it's like a forest aromas, like a mushroom, but very quickly the wine is open and you discover the balance between the strong power for the wine. And, uh, Perhaps it's uh, very sweet at the beginning, but you don't find the sweetness for the wine. It's a complexity with alcohol and acidity to create uh, a beautiful wine. And uh, all the champagne experts around the table, it's some Japanese, some uh, US, Italian people, UK people, French uh, wine experts, champagne experts, they remember always this tasting. And last year, I find a, a, a Japanese Jordanist and he remember all the day we are around this testing.
I'm going to move on a little bit and ask you um, to sort of talk about the way the champagne world has changed and evolved over the years that you've been a, a cellar master now for, you know, 27 years. How have, has the world of champagne changed? It's a, with a global warming effect. Uh, in the past, we have a harvest in October. Now it's currently beginning of September, sometime end of August. And we have... Uh, in the past, it's uh, 100 days between the blossom and the harvest. Today, last year, it's only 80 days. And uh, it's uh, a strong uh, maturity at the end. And you have less acidity in the still wine than in the past. And it's a big effect for the sun to destroy the natural acid. And today, it's uh, also... Uh, more um, research for sensitivity uh, in the vineyards to don't use pesticide, to reduce pesticide on four perishwet vineyards. 2020 is the first year with herbicide free. And just going back to the issue of the climate change, what is the answer to that? I mean, what is going to happen if, for example, that period from 100 days, 80 days keeps reducing, the you know, the weather gets warmer? What can Champagne do to address that issue? As you know, uh, for the quality of the grapes, it's when you have a balance between sugar level and acidity level. Perhaps it's better in the future to have harvest when you have the acidity level not the alcohol level, the sugar level. And uh, it's also another research with the new grapes variety to have uh, abilities for uh, this uh, new climate. So to find completely new grapes yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. Would, would work. Yeah. Gosh, that would be quite something, wouldn't but it, having to It's very important to, don't, uh, tra to transform uh, dramatically the champagne taste. How long is this going to take, Alfa, do you think? Uh, Perhaps 20 years, in 20 years, you can have a, a path for the vineyards. You have some uh, new grapes variety with a service and you try uh, last year for the first time the first champagne for this grapes variety. So the CIVC, just to explain, is the governing body of, of champagne. Yes, and uh, we have uh, wine growers, uh, negotiants, and they work together for the future. And uh, it's uh, a path for the, the research to adapt the vineyard for the next generations. What a job to do, goodness. So, Elfie, um, later this year, in October, uh, you are retiring. Um, I'm just wondering, after such a busy life, so much travelling, so many things that you've done, how will you cope with uh, retirement? Will you be happy to relax or, or do you have lots of, lots of plans already in place? And uh, it's a new life. It's like a new page when you turn a, a page in your book. And uh, I stay always in Champagne. It's my country uh, side. And uh, I live uh, near Epernay. I have a lot of friends around uh, Champagne regions. And perhaps I can have uh, some testing with uh, the friend, also with CIVC uh, research. And uh, perhaps uh, it's a new occupations on more gardening, on more contact. It's very important for me to maintain a Pernod Ricard uh, motto, make a new friend every day. 
Hervé Deschamps. Thank you so much. Thank you, Suzy. This was the first episode of Artisans of the Wine. If you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, you can find the rest of the series on your podcast listening platform of choice, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or Deezer. Thank you again for listening and goodbye for now. <laughs>